0: Well, this morning, I'd invite you to open the Word of God once again with me to the letter of 1 Peter. Last week, we examined the difficult call to submit to civil authorities. Obeying civil authorities isn't always an easy matter, but I'm afraid today's message isn't any easier. This morning, we're going to see that Peter addresses Christian servants, and in so doing, he anticipates a very important question. It's a question that really lies at the base of all social interactions, all of our relationships. And the question is this. It's, what about when I'm mistreated? What about when I'm mistreated? Please stand for the reading of God's word. Let's read our text. 1 Peter chapter 2. Our text is verses 18 and 25. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. That's the reading of God's inerrant word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, We come to you, not on the basis of our merits, but on the basis of the merits of your son. We do plead the blood of Jesus. And we pray that because you are a gracious and merciful and patient God, that you would once again speak to us. And we ask that you would get through to us as hard as our hearts are. Lord, please, would your word soften us. We pray that we as your people would have a Christ-like response to this word. Father, I pray there be anybody in our midst who does not know the Savior in a personal, genuine way, that you would also reach them with the truth of your word. Father, I need your power. We pray for power upon your servant and upon every listener to hear exactly what you want to say. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a soldier in the Highland Regiment stationed in Egypt. He was a young private and a young Christian, having recently come to Christ during the regiment's time in Malta. But this young man was very sincere in his young faith. He was not ashamed of Christ, but was eager to share what he knew of the gospel with any of the soldiers who would listen. And one habit he had was to get on his knees every night in the barracks beside his cot, and before going to bed, to spend some time unashamedly with his Lord. Well, many of his fellow soldiers gave him a hard time about this, particularly one sergeant. This sergeant was more than annoyed at the young man's display of faith, and as a superior ranking officer, he went out of his way to make life miserable for the young private. Well, one night after returning from his post as a sentry, the young private, entered the barracks, and as usual, before retiring to sleep, he got on his knees and began to pray. The sergeant noticed this, and he threw both of his mud-covered boots at the young man, nailing him twice in the head. But the young man continued there, on his knees. The next morning, the sergeant testified, That when he awoke, what he saw absolutely riveted him. There beside his cot were both his boots, cleaned and beautifully polished. He had seen the Christian's faith before, but he said this finally broke his heart. It broke his heart so much so that he himself committed his life to Jesus that day. This is the sort of excellent behavior that the Lord has called us to in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, where we see Christ is calling us by means of behavior to display, not simply share Christ with words, but to display him in our lifestyle to a watching world. You see, the world has a clear modus operandi. The, clear has a, the, the world has a clear mode of operation for how we are to respond to others. It's quite natural for all of us. It's the idea that we should treat others according to how they treat us. That's the world's basic mode of operation. Do to others as they do to you. That's it. That's simple and that's natural. And you don't need the Spirit of God to supernaturally enable you to love or do good to anyone who loves or does good to you. I mean, unless you're a complete sociopath, you love those who love you, you do good to those who do good to you. But this explains, then, what was so powerful about the young private's behavior toward his superior. It was the fact that he honored a man who did not honor him. A man who did not respect him. Rather than returning evil for evil by God's grace, this young man broke the cycle. And the Lord, like Peter talks about in 1 Peter 2.12, visited this sinner with salvation. This was a day of salvation. Now in verse... 17 of this letter that we just saw last week, we've been commanded to respect or to honor all people. Do you remember that? Peter says honor all people. This would include honoring those whom we do not personally deem worthy of honor. It would include honoring those that do not honor us. And in this next paragraph now, beginning in verse 18, Peter takes things a step further because he knows there are situations when Christians, like yourself, will suffer gross injustice. You will suffer mistreatment. Even, yes, if you live as a Christian in this world, you will be mistreated. And in such situations, we may very well be tempted to take exception to the rule, honor all people. Peter knows this. Indeed, Christians suffering injustice may feel entitled to hate and disrespect their persecutors. But verse 18 gives us this singular imperative in the paragraph. Here it is. Servants, be submissive. Be submissive to your masters with all respect. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. This morning I want... ...to show you how in the face of injustice, Peter's calling us to imitate the behavior of Jesus Christ. Especially if you're going to follow Jesus, Christian, you must patiently endure injustice. You must patiently endure injustice. And I understand this is counterintuitive. Peter does as well, and this is why... Peter gives three reasons in this text that Christians must, against our natural instinct, patiently endure injustice if we're going to follow Jesus. And the first reason you must patiently endure injustice is that this fulfills your duty. Peter writes, verse 18, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Once again, our text begins with that unpopular imperative be submissive last week we saw Peter's call for us to be submissive to civil authorities and next week we're going to see he's calling for submissiveness in the context of the home no Christian naturally wants to do that to be submissive especially not when it comes to an unreasonable boss but that's not the question is it how do you feel about this What has this person done to you? That's not the question. The first question is really, and it's the premise upon which this command is given here in this text, do you belong to Christ? Do you belong to God? If you do, then this imperative, be submissive, is God's word to you. And God's not asking your opinion on it. He's not taking a poll. He simply says, be submissive. If you're a Christian, the essence of your duty to patiently endure injustice is because you are first a servant of God. Before you have any other responsibility in this world, you have a responsibility to God. You belong to him. Back in verse 16, we were reminded that we are bond slaves of God. Remember that? And it's on this premise of our servitude to God that we are not in any position position, to object to God and say no to God. We are his bond slaves. And so the Bible, for that reason, doesn't consult our feelings. God's word simply says, be submissive to your masters with all respect. That's the essence of your duty here. It's God's authority over you as his child, as his people. Now, because Peter's calling on servants to be submissive to their masters, some have taken issue with the Bible over this, and they've even gone so far to claim that the Bible supports the institution of slavery. And so, because this charge is, by many, wished to discredit the Bible, I think it's worth briefly responding to that, considering how this is really just a cheap shot that misreads the text. Let me give you several things here just to think about briefly. First of all, the Bible does outright condemn the sort of slavery that we see that happened in America's early history. The kind of slavery that's continuing to this day, by the way, in human trafficking. In Exodus 21, 16, we read, He who kidnaps a man, God said, Whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, he shall surely be put to death. God condemns slavery. The kind of thing that's still happening in our world today. And additionally, much of the slavery, which existed in Bible times, at least more closely resembled indentured servitude. This is where a person would sell himself. He would sell himself to a master in return for food and lodging, and in many cases, even learning a trade. I'm just saying, the slavery in Peter's historical context was not slavery based on racism like it was in America's early history. This is apples to oranges. Thirdly, it's worth noting that just because the New Testament The few letters of the New Testament we have, this letter from Peter included, does not explicitly condemn the institution of slavery. That doesn't prove that the New Testament authors themselves were pro-slavery. I I hope you can see that. Peter never intended that this letter would be read as an exhaustive summation of his political views. And, And why should it? How could it be? The entire Roman economy was founded on slavery. And most of the early Christians themselves were slaves. So Peter's not writing to anyone in a position, for that matter, with any ability to directly alter the the Roman economy or change the institution of slavery. No, Peter is simply here giving pastoral instruction to Christians already living in this system, as corrupt as it is. And so without denying that slavery is a real problem, just as cancer and other maladies we face, let's just bring this back into context here The Bible focuses on our most fundamental need, doesn't it? Like Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. That is the freedom that precedes all freedoms. That's the freedom that is more fundamental and necessary than any freedom you have in life. It's a freedom in our soul. It's a freedom from sin, because you can live as a free citizen all the days of your life and still die as a slave to sin. And my friend, that would be an eternal loss. Notwithstanding, the greatest social reforms that we read about in history are in fact those that began in the soul. Whether it's a soul like Luther or Wilberforce, these souls find freedom in Christ and that freedom we see followed to its logical, practical, biblical conclusion results in a freedom on a societal scale. Because when people are emancipated from sin, they will emancipate one another. That's not my opinion, by the way. That's a fact and pattern that we observe in history. And so I just say all that because this text absolutely does not condone slavery, but it does tell us if we find ourselves in a position as a slave to a master, how we ought to respond. The essence of your duty, God is saying, to patiently endure injustice is that you are first and foremost the servant of God. God is the one giving you this duty. But also, as a Christian, the extent of your duty to patiently endure injustice includes respecting even those who disrespect you. Peter says, servants be submissive to your masters. There's a command there, with all respect. And then he says, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. It's a lot easier to show respect to your boss when he's like Mr. Rogers neighborhood, you know, Good and gentle. Oh yeah, you know, I love my boss. My boss treats me well. Hey, that, that's a lot easier. But God extends your duty to respecting even the not so good and gentle. He uses the great word Scalias" here, which translated as unreasonable, carries the idea of someone who is just so perverse. They're so crooked. They really don't give a rip about your feelings. They don't care about your rights. They don't care about how they're treating you. And it's the kind of person we would say, you're just being so unreasonable. This really hits close to home. While many of us, we know the idea, we know the saying, life's unfair. Somehow, when it comes to people treating us unfairly, we expect things a little differently. That, that's somehow a little harder, right? When the weather's bad, no, life's unfair. But when your boss is mean to you, when he disrespects you, we think, well, this is a thinking person this person should be a little bit more reasonable. And that's what Peter's talking about. However unfair or unreasonable your authority, God's extending you a duty to respect them too. Now I know someone's probably thinking, if it's my Christian duty to, to patiently endure injustice, does this mean that I'm just to be a doormat? That is to just lay down and let people walk all over me and do whatever they wish with me? No, that's the short answer. Uh, I understand, Peter's not simply saying, you must let others do whatever they wish with you. That wouldn't be the point here. Jesus himself would be an example of that. Jesus, he's going to turn to the example of Christ himself, but Jesus himself didn't allow people to simply take from him whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. You see Jesus evading capture at times, evading attempts on his life at times, because it wasn't the time. When Jesus said, turn the other cheek, he was prohibiting repaying evil for evil. That is wrong. We don't base our ethics on how others treat us. That's not a Christian ethic. Jesus said, we don't simply react in life. That's not a life of principle. That's not a life of following Jesus. That's a life of reacting and, and, and being determined by whatever the world does to you. When Jesus said, turn the other cheek, he was prohibiting repaying evil for evil, but he was not forbidding personal safety or self-defense. So again, this is just an important qualification here. This isn't a call to be a doormat. It's a call to not prioritize your rights, your comfort, your love of self and respect of yourself over your respect of others. I suspect the reason, I'll just say this too, the number one reason that some Christians do live as a doormat in their homes or at work is because they are simply afraid to say no. They fear man and that is not right. If you're a Christian you must fear God over any person including your boss or whoever's taking advantage of you and I also want to just say this too because it it needs to be said in our society I know the word abuse can mean a million different things but I hope this is clear it's not right for anyone To silently endure sexual abuse. Not in any context. Not at work or home or wherever. That's not what this text is saying. To just allow people to take from you whatever they want. Because we belong to God, we are not to let others simply take what they want from us. Having said all that, Peter is saying we are called to respect all people. Even the unreasonable, even those who mistreat you, regardless of whether or not they respect you. The first reason you must patiently endure injustice, what is it? This is your duty to God. God gives you an imperative. The second reason you must patiently endure injustice is that this finds favor with God. This finds favor with God. Verse 19, for this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you bear sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Now given how counterintuitive this is, to patiently endure mistreatment, Peter adds some encouragement for how it is We are to do this. And first he's saying God favors this sort of endurance with an eye heavenward. Endurance with an eye heavenward. With a mindfulness toward him. Verse 19. For this finds favor, notice, if for the sake of conscience, toward God. A person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For the sake of conscience toward God. The ESV translates this as when mindful of God. And however you translate it, Peter's directing our attention upward. Not even inward, but upward. He wants you to consider that although the pain and ridicule you're suffering unjustly is real, and he's not calling you to live in denial of that, He's calling you to suffer with an eye heavenward. This would remind us perhaps of Stephen. Remember Acts chapter 7? Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, is tried and unjustly condemned for sake of his conscience toward God. And as his persecutors begin to fall upon him and and to beat him and mistreat him, He intently, we're told, full of the Holy Spirit, gazes heavenward. He gazes heavenward and sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, by the way, this is the only time in all the New Testament that we read about Jesus in heaven standing. Every other place in the New Testament, he is seated. His work is finished. But here, he is uniquely standing. And he is standing in approval of his servant, Stephen. Jesus' posture says it all. Well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus was pleased. The the posture of, of Stephen, suffering injustice, patiently, as Jesus did, found favor with God as Stephen kept an eye heavenward. Stephen felt the sting of suffering, that's very clear. But it was nothing compared to the favor he found with God. He kept his gaze on God. And this is how every true Christian can, for sake of conscience toward God, bear up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Keep an eye upward. Keep an upward look. Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich as a sort of snapshot summary of his own time in a Soviet gulag. The story is set in a Stalinist camp in freezing Siberia in 1951. While many were sent to these camps for political reasons, of course, Christians could be sent there and were sent there for simply living as Christians in an intolerant society. That's the case of the prisoner Alyoshka. Alyoshka is a devout Baptist. He's resilient in the face of adversity. And and he's so resilient in all of the trials he faces that it appears to others watching him that he's actually enjoying life in this Stalinist camp. And and this is just unthinkable to those around him. In fact, Alyosha also does something else. He favors, or he does favors, for those around him expecting nothing in return. And I mention this because the character Alyosha really represents all those Christians who did historically suffer in Siberia. They suffered in these camps. But at the same time, they could endure that injustice with joy. Patiently enduring all that injustice with thankfulness to God. Somehow showing glory to God in those trials because they kept an eye on their real master. They kept an eye heavenward. What does this mean for us here and now? Well, maybe there's someone here and you would say. Somebody is saying, somebody at work or home or wherever on the social media is saying something false about me. Maybe they're falsely accusing you or slandering you because they know you're a Christian. Or maybe there's a group of co-workers that gossip about you or ignore you or mock you because they know that you follow Jesus You may be suffering unjustly in those cases, but let me ask you this. Are you able to smile? Are you able to thank God in that suffering? Do you have peace? A peace that passes the understanding of those persecuting you. If you aren't able to thank God, that's because your eye is not heavenward. If you aren't able to have peace in the storm, it's because you don't have your eye on the one who controls the storm, on the one who is sovereign in the situation and who has commanded from you to endure patiently even in those circumstances. What matters to us most? Drawing on God's favor and bearing up in our suffering by drawing on His favor, remembering Him, or having the favor of men. When you see a Christian like Stephen or Alyoshka bearing up under unjust suffering. That is only because these Christians are more mindful of God than of their own comfort and pleasure. And this is the work of God in a true believer. You can't fake this. This isn't a call to fake it till you make it. This is a call to have a, a true peace within by keeping your mind in God. So God favors endurance with an eye, heaven, and word. But there's more to it than that because anyone can say... I'm suffering unjustly. Anyone can say I'm being persecuted for my faith when that's not really the case, is it? Hmm. Brothers and sisters, because we have deceitful hearts, we can believe we're suffering for Christ's sake when we're really not. And so Peter adds an important qualification in verse 20, and he wants you to know that God favors endurance for what is right. For what is right. He says, what, for what credit is there if when you sin you are harshly treated, and you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Simply put, Peter's saying, I'm not talking about suffering for being a jerk. There is no reward in that. If you are sinning, if you are doing what is wrong, such as being lazy on the job, or being irritable when others try to get under your skin, and you you allow them, you you amuse them in your wrong responses, or you are disrespectful for any number of offenses, you can find yourself in a situation where you're enduring harsh treatment. But Peter would want you to know, this is no credit to you. He says, there's no profit in this kind of endurance. This kind of endurance finds no favor with God, because in this case, you are suffering justly. You are bringing it upon yourself for your wrongs. Here's a bit of extreme example, but Fred Phelps, the inflammatory pastor of a church-run cult in Topeka, Kansas, once called on his members to protest military funerals because of how much he hated America, because of how all of America's sins. Now, picketing with hateful signs at a funeral, that's heartless. That's plain evil. And any one of us can agree that When such hateful actions are met with criticism and said persecution, those people are getting what they deserve. They are bringing that upon themselves. That's a no-brainer. But that's also an extreme example. The principle applies, though, to anyone. I'm sure most of us would be quicker to say when we're being persecuted or or when, when we're being mistreated, I'm being persecuted. It's because I'm a Christian. Yeah, we could be quick for that. But the truth is, you're not working hard. You're not displaying love of Christ. People love getting under your skin because of how you react. It's entertaining. They love it. And you are not patiently enduring for Christ. You're getting what you deserve, the Lord says. Christian, you better learn to work hard. You better learn to respond with grace toward those who mistreat you. You better learn to be at peace when everything around you at work is hectic. Because simply enduring suffering, Peter's saying doesn't find favor with God. It's not simply enduring. God favors enduring for doing what is right. Don't miss that. The only way this is ever going to happen in your experience where you will patiently endure injustice and you will suffer for what is right. The only way that's ever going to happen is if God's favor on your life means more to you than your personal peace and comfort your reputation and the favor of others. And when we get our priority straight, and God's favor means more to us than anything, we will endure patiently for the Lord's sake. So my question is, how much does this matter to you? How much does it matter to you to have God's favor on your life? Does it matter to you more than your peace? Does it matter to you more than what others think about you at work? What matters most? Does it matter to you most to know that the Father looks upon you and says in that moment of suffering, that is my child? But Peter adds a third reason here then, that you must patiently endure injustice. He's told us that we must patiently endure injustice because this fulfills our duty as Christians, and this finds favor with God. But thirdly, We must patiently endure injustice as Christians because this follows Jesus' example. Verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. It can almost be like a knee-jerk reaction. (laughs) If you're a Christian and somebody says, do you want to follow Jesus? Of course, yeah, we all want to follow Jesus. Who's going to say, no, I don't want to follow in Jesus' footsteps? Well, you're not really a Christian then, right? But before just saying we want to follow Jesus, we need to think twice about what that means. Because here, it it means something costly. It means something extremely difficult and counterintuitive. And Peter not only wants us to endure anyway and follow Jesus' example, but he wants to encourage us in this direction. And so in verses 22 and 23, he shows us that to follow Jesus' example, we must entrust our life To God, This is really the only way that we can do this. This is the way that Jesus was able to endure such unjust suffering. Verse 22, he begins by relating Jesus' amazing purity. Of Christ we read, Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Stop right there. This is an allusion to Isaiah 53, 9, which says of Messiah, He had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Jesus did what was right, insomuch that anyone examining his life, even at a trial, imagine being put on trial and and having people called to the stand, I mean, just searching your life, trying to come together, having followed your life for weeks, months, years, and not being able to dig up any dirt on you. That's Jesus Christ. Nobody could find fault with this man. Oh, except the truth. Jesus was nailed for the truth. He died for the truth. And Peter's point here is not to delude us to think that we can be as perfect as Jesus, but to inspire us. He's arguing from a greater to a lesser. If Jesus, the holiest man to ever live, was mistreated for doing good, then what do we expect? What what ought our attitude to be toward our persecutors? If Jesus was nailed for doing what's right, do we feel entitled to anything more than Jesus? Do we feel more entitled than Jesus was to insist on our rights? Once again, Jesus was in the right. As God, he had all the right to be treated better than he was treated. But Jesus gives that all up. And Peter tells us why in verses 24 and 25. But he he next relates Jesus' amazing self-control. Verse 23, he says, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. Is that you at work? Is that you in the home? Other people going after you? Tearing you down? How do you respond? He says, while suffering he uttered no threats. Imagine having the ability to immediately incinerate your enemies with a glance. Okay, maybe don't think about that, right? Murderous thoughts, right? Imagine having that ability. And, and, And then with power like that at your immediate disposal, it would be especially difficult not to at least threaten your enemies. Say, look, you don't know what I can do to you right now. Okay, this isn't about just being a black belt, uh, you know, karate or something like this. Jesus had power at his disposal, yet we're told he uttered no threats. That is amazing. He stood there like a silent, sacrificial lamb, and just took it—a picture of perfect self-control. Now, how such endurance even possible? Well, Peter explains, while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. There it is. While Jesus is God in his humanity, he needed to continually entrust himself to the Father who judges righteously. This word entrusting literally means to hand over. Jesus handed over his life to the Father That is the testimony of our Lord. That is why the Father could say, this is my beloved Son. I'm well pleased in Him. Jesus always did the will of the Father. He always handed over what was His to God, the Father. It says here, it's yours. Take it, I entrust it to you. And just to be clear, this entrusting your life to God isn't a passive trust. This isn't saying, God, uh, I'm not going to lift a finger until you zap me with strength and help me. No, this is an active trust. And we know that because Peter goes on in 1 Peter 4.19 to say that those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. You see, later on in the same letter, Peter says that we must entrust ourselves to God by doing. Doing what is right. This act of entrusting your life to God, it means you do the hard thing. It means you do the right thing regardless of how hard. And you say, God, here's my life. (laughs) Instead of taking my life in my hands, I put it in your hands, and you take care of the consequences. Now, you will only entrust yourself to God like that to the extent that you believe God judges righteously. We might put the question this way. When it comes to your life and how you live, who's keeping the score? Who's keeping the scorecard for you, the score of your life? Jesus never wavered. We know that he knew the Father always judges righteously. And he lived out his entire life on that premise. And if you're going to follow in Jesus' steps, you, you must do the same. You must settle for once and all who it is that keeps the score of your life, whose judgment really matters. Jesus Never wavered in endurance because he was sustained by this unwavering faith. And it was at the end of his life, he says, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. More of the same for Jesus. Let me ask you something, friend. If you were lying right now on your deathbed, would you be sure, as any sinner can be sure on this side of life, that before you exit through life's exit doors and commit yourself into the hands of the Almighty, would you have peace about that? Would you be at rest? Would your soul be at peace to know, I am entrusting my eternal life into the hands of Almighty God? If that is the case, if you can entrust your soul to God in death, then why can you not entrust your life to God? Why can you not entrust your soul to God in life, in suffering? When suffering, injustice, In the moment of temptation, we may very well think, but how can I do this? How can I entrust my soul to, my soul to God? I know he's sovereign. I, I know his judgment is always righteous. I believe that theologically, Pastor. But I just can't bring myself to do it. And you may come to a place, maybe somebody's there this morning, where you just feel you can't do it. You feel you're about to collapse. Well, Peter adds a final word of encouragement for you. To follow Jesus' example, you must entrust your life to God, yes, but also to follow Jesus' example, you must remember His sacrifice. Verse 24, And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you were healed. Peter continues borrowing imagery from Isaiah 53 and this is because Peter recognized without a doubt that Jesus Jesus is the suffering servant of Yahweh Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53 he's the servant who willingly offers himself as a substitute sin bearer on behalf of the sins of his people and when you're struggling then to patiently endure injustice for Jesus sake Peter wants you to remember what Jesus did for you He wants you to remember what Jesus endured for you. First, he himself bore our sins. And if you're familiar enough with the Old Testament, you'll recognize how significant this choice of words truly is. Peter's saying, just as every sin offering, thousands and thousands upon thousands of sin offerings was said to, in some ceremonial way, bear Israel's guilt. Even so, Jesus was offered, Peter's saying. He was once for all offered to bear our guilt, to bear our sins. In what manner did Jesus do this? Peter says, in his body on the cross. You wonder why Christians are all about the cross, right? No, we don't worship crosses. No, there's no power in touching a cross, praying to a cross, anything like that. But I'll tell you what, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you better thank God for the cross every day of your life. Because even though that was an instrument of torture, it was the method, it was the altar upon which the Lamb of God was slain for your sin. In fact, Hebrews 10 explains that Jesus took upon himself a body for this express purpose. Not so that he could break some world records. Not so that he could enjoy all the bodily pleasures that we covet and for which we sell Christ. But Jesus took upon himself a body that he might offer that body as a Sacrifice for you. Jesus is the Lamb of God. The cross is the altar upon which he was sacrificed. Some will say, well, how does Jesus' death on a cross have anything to do with God taking away my sins? And I just have to say, you will not appreciate the New Testament message of the cross if you do not understand, if you not have any concept of the Old Testament message of sin and sacrifices for sin. The Bible is a complete whole. You can't have the New Testament without the Old Testament or the Old Testament without the New Testament. But when you study the Bible from beginning to end, hallelujah, praise the Lord. It is amazing that Jesus is the consummate expression, he is the fulfillment of every sacrifice ever offered. Because he actually did bear our sins in his body on the cross. God's wrath literally fell upon Jesus when he was on the cross because he was bearing our sins. Why? Peter says, He bore our sins so that we might die to sin and live. Live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. He's saying Jesus died that we might live. Look, Jesus didn't bear your sins so that you could stain them. Jesus didn't bear your guilt so that you could wallow in it for the rest of your life. He bore your sins so that you might die to sin. Jesus died for your sins so that you might live for righteousness. So what are you doing in your sin? Give it up. It's not your choice. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Finally, Peter cites from Isaiah 53, 6 here. At the end of verse 24, he gives you the effect of Jesus' sacrifice. He says, for by his wounds you were healed. This is a spiritual, moral healing. It's a healing for the brokenness and disease that we can do nothing about. That medicine can do nothing about. That technology and learning and, no, and any scientific advancement can do nothing about. This is a healing that only God himself, by means of Christ's cross, can provide to the sinner. Verse 25 says, For you were continually straying as sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Jesus is the good shepherd who goes after the sheep. He cares for our souls. And Peter just wants you to remember that. When you are tempted to give up, to collapse under injustice for the sake of Christ, he's saying, think about this. Remember where you were, where you once were, continually straying like sheep. You know sheep. Dumb, defenseless, lost, without a shepherd. That's us. Until Christ found us and brought us into his fold and called us by name and made us his own and protects us and cares for us and tells us in John 10, he will never lose us. Peter says, yeah, you remember where you once were. You see, every time a Christian is unwilling to patiently endure injustice for the sake of Christ, that unwillingness can only be due to one thing. It is due to... To forgetfulness, forgetfulness of Jesus' sacrifice. You won't endure injustice for Jesus, it's because you have forgotten what Jesus endured for you. You want to follow Jesus' example, entrust your life to God, remember Jesus' sacrifice. Christian, there's no way around it. If you're gonna be a Christian, if you're gonna follow Christ, that pathway will lead you through suffering. You must patiently endure injustice for the sake of Christ. And without Jesus as our example, I understand that makes no sense. But with knowing all that we know of Jesus Christ, patiently enduring injustice isn't just our duty, it's our honor. In 1948, a band of communists took control of a town near the 38th parallel called Sun Chun. There they kidnapped a couple of Christian boys and beat them. Witnesses said the boys continued calling their persecutors to repent and believe on Christ until they were both shot to death. Well, after the communists were driven out of the town, the young man who had actually fired the murderous shots, this young man himself was identified and sentenced to be executed. Well, the father having endured, the father of these two victims, having endured all of this injustice, approached the court. His name was uh, Yang Wong Sung. He was a pastor, a Korean pastor there. And he came to the authorities and requested that the charges might be dropped and that he might adopt the young man who just shot his two boys. Well, the court was hesitant. As you can imagine, they were probably in shock somewhat, until the 13-year-old sister of these two murdered boys came forward in support of her father's plea, asking that the court would hand over the young murderer and that he might be up for adoption. The court dropped the charges and released the young man who became the son of Pastor Yang Wong and a believer in the grace of Jesus Christ. And Pastor Yang Wong would say, I thank God. I thank God he has given me the love to seek to convert and to adopt as my son the enemy who killed my dear boys. You see, patiently enduring injustice does make a difference. God says so. This is why he has called us to endure for his sake. If anyone listening would like further counsel on how to endure injustice. Please see me. Please let me know. Or if anyone here would like to know more about how is it that Christ's suffering can mean my salvation, please don't leave without coming and letting me know. We'd love to show you from the Bible how you don't have to wonder that you belong to the Lord Jesus and you can have eternal salvation in him because of what he's done on the cross. Let's pray.